0: Good morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, open it with me to Isaiah chapter fifty-three. And as we've been walking through Isaiah, we decided that uh, that we're going to camp out here in Isaiah fifty-three for a handful of sermons and go as deep into it as we can because I believe that it's going to revolutionize our hearts so that we worship. But it's not simply words coming out of our mind. It's words flowing out of our heart. We worship, but not with dry eyes. It's with tears running down our cheeks. We follow Christ. We serve Christ. And it's with overwhelming gratitude and response of his love to us. Did you know that throughout history and even right here in the state of Texas, there have been many people, many innocent people, who were executed for crimes they did not commit. For example, Carlos de Luna. He was convicted in 1983, executed in 1989, and yet a Chicago Tribune investigation released in 2006 revealed groundbreaking evidence that this man was more than likely innocent, and yet he was executed. Ruben Cantu, convicted in 1985, executed in 1983. After his execution, evidence surfaced, revealing his innocence. Joseph Odile in Virginia was convicted in 1986, executed in 1997. After his death, new DNA evidence surfaced, once again revealing his innocence. Claude Jones, convicted in Texas in 19. 89 executed in 2000. After his execution, DNA tests raised serious doubt as to his guilt. Is that not tragic? One, to have your freedom taken away from you for something that you didn't do, but secondly, to have your life taken away from you for something that you didn't do. With that in mind... Let's go to our text, Isaiah chapter 53, and read about an execution that took place, and the one who was executed was completely innocent. And what makes this execution so profound, so unique, so moving, is that he was absolutely innocent, and he was executed for my sins. I committed the crimes and the consequences of those sins were death but he was executed for me so that I could go free and this is the theme of Isaiah 53 he was brutally slaughtered for you so that you could go free and he did it willingly he did it joyfully Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is a messianic prophecy about Jesus written in some 700 B.C. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, because he was so brutally uh, disfigured. We read in Isaiah 52, and then summarizing last week, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is a prophecy about Christ being slaughtered, the Messiah being slaughtered for our sins, but it's more than that. It's also a prophecy of one day when the nation of Israel will experience a national revival and look back upon the cross and say, we esteemed him not. Why did they not esteem him? They didn't value the Messiah's sacrifice on the cross. They didn't value the Messiah's sacrifice on the cross because they did not think that they needed the Messiah's sacrifice upon the cross. Therefore, they esteemed him not. You see, any time in summary of last week, we diminish our perspective of God's holiness then by default we will exaggerate our understanding of our own righteousness. Therefore, we will discount our need for a Savior. They believed they needed a political leader. They believed they needed a deliverer. But they so diminished God's holiness and so exaggerated their own righteousness that they discounted their need for a spiritual Savior. They thought all the Messiah should be should be a government leader, a a, A a deliverer from our government, because they thought they were doing a pretty good job of upholding the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. In fact, some of you guys have been praying for me. I'm trying to learn Spanish. I'm taking a Spanish class. Halfway through the semester, I gave a presentation on Pancho Villa, and it went horribly. (laughs) Horribly. I stood in front of the class, and my mind went totally blank, and then when the words came back in my three-minute presentation, I had one goal, and that was to sit down as soon as possible, so I turned a three-minute speech into a 45-second speech, and I sat down, and I, and I thought about all the times I stand up and preach, and I thought, God, thank you for reminding me that it's all you. And at the end of the semester, which was uh, about a week ago Friday, I had an opportunity to give another presentation, and this time I shared the gospel in Spanish. And it was a pure joy, and I gave everybody in the class a book, and I invited them to church, one one of my books— Well, a couple of days later, I get an email from a girl who finds her book, who finds my book before she goes into a class, so she starts reading it, and she says, this is really resonating with me, this is right where I am, I'm 18, I just started college, and I'm I'm exposed to all of these groups on campus, and they all have their own version of the gospel, and I'm so confused, and she set up a meeting with me. And we met, and I said, you know what, let's start with Genesis, And then let's start with Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And for about two and a half hours, I walked her through the gospel and she sent a message and she said, I sat in my car and tears were coming down my face and my heart had so much joy because I realized how simple the gospel is, that God loves me. I'm just overwhelmed by his love. And my prayer is that at the end of our sermon, you will be overwhelmed by the simplicity of the gospel and the love of God that was poured out upon the cross. You see, if we so diminish God's holiness and we so elevate our own righteousness, then we think that our greatest need is to have a little money to make it to the end of the month, or we think that our greatest need is to not have any problems in our life, or we think that our greatest need is for everybody to get along with us and to like us. But when we have a right understanding of the holiness of God... Then by default, like Isaiah, who was the best of the best, and Isaiah 6, who saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and the seraph was singing, holy, holy, holy creatures whose sole purpose were designed to worship God, infinitely more articulate than Shakespeare, infinitely more intelligent than Einstein, infinitely more theologi- theologically profound than Spurgeon in worshiping God for eternity past and eternity future and eternity present gets stumped up on one word and that one word is holy you are high and lifted up you are holy and he didn't go wow He said, woe is me, for I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, I am in the presence of a holy God, and the weight of His holiness is utterly crushing me, I am like a tea candle in the presence of the noonday sun. When we get a right understanding of the holiness of God, we have a proper understanding of our righteousness, and we see that it's wanting And we see that our greatest need is not money for the end of the month or for everybody to get along with us or to have a problem-free week. Our greatest need is a Savior from our sins. And when we have a Savior from our sins, we can't help but worship Him with tears in our eyes and streaming down our cheeks. And we can't help but follow Him with passion and with gratitude. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul was trying to help people get a right understanding of God's holiness and a proper understanding of their righteousness and to realize that there is a discrepancy and they are in need of a Savior. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32, Paul is speaking about people who've never heard the law before, the Mosaic law, that thou shalt not or thou wilt die. And he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge god and he's saying even though they didn't have an understanding of the law they're still accountable because they've still sinned and the wages of sin is still death god gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they're full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossip slanderers haters of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless ruthless Though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such such things shall surely die, they do not do them. And the Jews who heard that, the ones who understood that thou shalt not, and thou shalt, and if thou doesn't and if thou does then thou will be killed the jews who had a proper understanding of the mosaic law were pointing their finger with paul at the gentiles and that was paul leading them in this train of thought to then say to them in essence look you're pointing your finger at the gentiles but what's happening three fingers are pointing back at you because you do the exact same things but under the law so you're an even greater sinner than the gentiles who sin apart from the law chapter 2 verse 1 Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Chapter 2, verse 8. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will surely, there will be wrath and fury. And then in verse 12. For all this is gentiles and this is Jews who have sinned without the law will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law and then into that well-known verse Romans 3:23 for all and who is all everybody gentiles and Jews for all have sinned those who have sinned without knowledge of the law and those who have sinned under the law there is no difference For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what is the result of this? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And the wages or the consequence of sin is death. But then the second part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, our greatest need is a savior from our sins. So when they despised Jesus, and they esteemed Him not, and they were ridiculing Him, and they were spitting upon Him, and they were torturing Him, and they were mocking Him, and they were insulting Him, they should have been on their face worshiping Him, because they should have been saying, we are the ones who lusted when we should have been pure. But you're paying for our lust." We are the ones who were angry without cause and therefore murdered when we should have forgiven and loved, and there you are, paying for our bitterness. We are the ones who showed favoritism and judged when we should have loved unconditionally, but there you are, paying for our favoritism. We are the ones who broke every aspect of God's holy ordinance, which can be summed up in one word, love. And there you are paying for our hate. And there he was paying for our sins as well. And we esteemed him not. To some, the gospel is an aroma of life. To others, the gospel is an aroma of death. And it all depends on if we have a right understanding of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and understand our need for a Savior and see Jesus Christ paying for our sins on the cross. And so as we continue in Isaiah chapter 53, let's look at three aspects of this innocent sacrifice. One, let's look at the punishment of the innocent, the punishment of the innocent. Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely, it says like an exclamation mark before the sentence, surely he has borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, we'll come back to that phrase, but he was... Interesting terminology for a prophet whose only understanding of capital punishment at this point is stoning but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities and then the the penal aspect of this upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed verse 8 and 9 By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, watch this, he was innocent. It was our sins he was chastised for. It was our sins he was punished for. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, And why did he do this? Well, let's look at how he did this. The heart and uh, Jesus' sacrifice for us upon the cross. First, he did this. He was slaughtered. He suffered and he did this willingly. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did this willingly. At any time, he could have called legions of angels to defend him, to fight upon his behalf, to worship him, but that would have meant that we pay for our sins and not him. And this is why he came. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus expresses his mission statement. And he said, for even the Son of Man, and referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, watch this, and to give His life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is? A ransom is when somebody is kidnapped or they're held hostage and they're demanding money for their release. Our ransom was death, and Jesus paid that ransom with His own blood, and He did so willingly. This is why He came. And not only did Jesus pay for our sins willingly, Jesus paid for our sins passionately. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus is saying, this is how much I love you. I come from eternity to time, from heaven to earth, where I am being worshiped and honored to a place that I will be ridiculed and tortured. And I'm doing it because I love you. And he did this passionately. And if this is how he treated us when we were separated from him and our sins, how will he now treat us now that his spirit is within us and we're clothed with his very own righteousness? And he did this. He made this, sac- this sacrifice also necessarily, Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was a necessity that he paid for our sins on the cross. If salvation could be inherited in any other capacity, Paul makes the argument, then Jesus dies for nothing. And this is a love story. Jesus did this out of necessity, and he did it passionately, and he did it willingly. An illustration similar to that in which we gave last week. Can you imagine a boyfriend loving a girl so much that he stands in front of her and randomly pulls out a gun and shoots himself in the head? That makes no sense. That's not love, that's twisted. But can you imagine a boyfriend loving a girlfriend so much... That somebody else pulls out a gun and puts it to her and he jumps in front of the gun and takes the bullet. Now that's love. No greater love is there than this, that somebody lays down his life for another. And this is what Jesus did for us. He died out of necessity because the wages of sin is death. And he paid the price for that sin. It's a theological term called substitutionary atonement, or penal substitutionary atonement. Penal deals with things in relation to the judicial system, the courts. Substitution. Well, you know what a substitute is. If you had them in the third grade, uh, your teacher was sick, and so you had a substitute. I still feel guilty for what we did to our substitute teachers. It's when somebody goes in for somebody else. They take their place. An atonement. We're familiar with atonement. After 9 11, all of America was screaming for atonement. We wanted somebody to pay for the towers. Now, put all of these together and we understand the necessity of the cross. The wages of sin is death. That's the penal aspect of it. And then we have substitution. Jesus came in and our place he is our substitute and then there is atonement jesus satisfied the demands of the law and he paid for ourselves so that we could go free he did this willingly passionately out of necessity and he did this completely john chapter 19 verse 30 when jesus received the sour wine he said it is finished it is finished if you've been around here for a while you know that in the greek that is tete stela, which means price paid in full it's accomplished it's not just ending his life dramatically like in a shakespeare play it's an accounting term tete stela. you buy meat in the market you give them the money they give you the meat they give you a receipt they stamp upon it tete stela. it's complete the transaction is fulfilled you go to prison for seven years. When you serve your time upon release, they give you the papers. They stamp across it. Seven years, te taste price paid in full. You served your time. And when Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, he cried, it is finished, or te taste it's accomplished. It's paid in full. Your past, present, and future sins are forgiven. They're in the sea of forgetfulness. te taste law. Your sins have been paid for completely. It's done. And then your sins have been paid for finally. It is final. The price has been paid. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And here's the substitution aspect of things. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit and the emphasis there is christ suffered for sins once and for all can you imagine the weights of the cross how many of you guys have ever said a little white lie raise your hand yeah and for those of you who didn't raise the hand your hand you just said a little white lie <laughs> the officer says did you know you were speeding oh no officer was i speeding Well, we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And every time we sin, even that little white lie brings with it a cringe of guilt, doesn't it? And then there's bigger sins, and that brings with it sometimes not simply a cringe, but the grief, the grief of guilt. And imagine experiencing the weight of all of your sins that you've ever committed in your life up to this point or will ever commit weighing upon your heart at the same time. Can you imagine the shame that you would feel? Can you imagine the grief, the sorrow, the sadness? The separation from God that you would feel, though still loved by God? And what Jesus experienced on the cross was the weight of all of your sins that you've ever committed or will ever commit at the same moment, multiplied by all 7 billion people who are alive today, multiplied by all the people who have ever lived. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross. No wonder the night before, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, My heart is sorrowful, even unto the point of death. Let this cup pass from me, Father. Why was his heart so sorrowful? Why was he sweating drops of blood? Why was he in such anguish? Why did he say, Father, let this cup pass from me? Was he afraid of the flesh being ripped off of his body through the cat of nine tails? Was he afraid of the torture, the crucifixion, the ridicule? No. We're talking about a man, a God man, who went 33 years without sinning once. He knew how to deny the flesh. We're talking about somebody who could go 40 days in the wilderness without food, praying sinlessly. He knew how to deny the flesh. He wasn't cringing at the, at, at, at the torturous aspect of the cross physically. He was cringing that he who knew no sin, he who's known only unity with the Father, union with the Father, oneness with the Father, righteousness and purity was about to become the embodiment of sin. And he was going to feel all of that weight at once. That was the cup he was about to drink. That's why his heart was sorrowful, even unto the point of death. And when Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, he paid for our sins, finally, once and for all. Romans 6:10: "For the death he died to sin once for all but the life He lives to God." And this was the suffering of the innocent upon the cross. And as we've said around here from time to time, this wasn't plan B, this was plan A. He was slain before the foundation of the earth. Even before God created the cosmos for Adam and Eve sin, Jesus was on a course with the cross to display His love for us. And this is the second aspect of Isaiah 53, and the, the punishment of the innocent, secondly, was for the pleasure of the Father. And it's okay for this to be mysterious. But verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the Father who laid on the Son the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The father put the son to grief. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's us, the church. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some years ago, after Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out, there was a big debate because... Some people in the Jewish community felt that Mel Gibson painted in his film an unfair uh, portrayal of the Jewish community saying that they, the film made it look like the Jews killed Christ. Well, if you've seen anything about behind the scenes in the film, you know that, that when they put the spikes on Jesus' hands, that the hand that, all you could see were the hands, but the hand that put the spike on the hands of Christ in the film and then hammered it in were actually Mel Gibson's hands. And Mel Gibson said, my sins killed Jesus. So who killed Jesus? Was it our sins? Was it, was it the Jews? let's look at this for a moment at first glance it would seem that the romans killed him because they were the ones that swung the hammer into the nail upon the nail but behind the the romans we have the jewish leadership who conspired and plotted and manipulated to ensure that the that the romans would kill jesus So at first glance, it looks like the Romans killed Jesus, but then we look a little further and then we realize that, well, it was actually the Jews. But then we look a little further behind that and we see that it was actually Judas who betrayed and plotted and conspired. So Judas is the culprit. But then we look behind Judas and we see that Satan actually entered Judas, so then we know that it was Satan who killed Jesus. But then we know that it was because of the sins of Adam and Eve and we who followed the first Adam in our sin nature and sinned that Jesus paid for our sins ultimately, so it was our sins who killed Jesus. But then we look beyond all of that and we see that the true architect of the cross, the one who was ultimately holding the hammer and the nails, was God the Father. Chapter 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Father did this for us. The Father would rather watch his son endure the agony of the cross for us than to live in eternity without us. And why did he do this? He did this so that we could know him. He did this. Jesus died for our sins so that we could die to sin. Jesus died for our sins once and for all so that we could have victory over our sins once and for all. Jesus paid the ultimate price so that we could have fellowship and relationship with him. And The Bible says that Jesus did this for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the agony of the cross. He looked through the agony of the cross at the joy on the other side, being resurrected, being glorified, being met with the Father in heaven that we read about in Hebrews 1, and to hear us call out to him and lean upon him and trust him and worship him and walk with him, the joy was us. The joy was for a relationship with us. And this brings us to the third aspect of Isaiah 53, and this is the righteousness of the sinners. He who knew no sin became sin and paid for our sin so that we, the sinners, could become the righteousness of God. And because of this, because of this gospel, we have peace with God. Chapter 53 verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, peace with God, fellowship with God, there's no longer tension in our hearts with God, when we look at God like Isaiah, we're not terrified, but we see God with his arms open wide, inviting us into fellowship with him, because of this, we have peace. You can pray to God and He will hear you and you don't have to worry if your prayers have been heard. You don't have to climb some ladder to to shout loudly enough in order for God to hear you. He hears you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And because of this, we have peace with God. Sometimes I think that we interpret our relationship with God as if we're a nuisance to Him. Maybe like we're in like pauper's clothes, homeless person's clothes and and he's in these really nice clothes and we're like groveling on our hands and knees and we're grabbing at his ankle and we're begging him for a blessing and he shakes us free and we keep begging him and then finally he just scowls at us and gives us what we need in order uh, just to sort of uh, cause us to stop bothering him. No, no, no. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, Jesus paid for sins once for all so that we could be dead to sin and were clothed in the righteousness of God, then we are dressed in royal garments, spiritually speaking. We are the... Sons and daughters of the living God, we're a prince and princes, and every time we pray, we boldly enter the throne room of God. Our steps are brought, and God's face illuminates, and He loves hearing from us, and He says, what can I do for you, my son? What can I do for you, my daughter? And because of the blood of Jesus, we boldly make our requests No, and we have peace. And for his glory, he delights in hearing, he delights in answering. We have peace with God because of the gospel. Not only that, but we are healed because of the gospel. Verse 5, the second part. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We're healed of our sin disease. We're healed of separation from God. We're healed of, of, of sorrow in our heart. We're healed of regret and guilt. And we are also declared righteous. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the Father speaking of the Son... Make many to be accounted righteous. This is why we have joy. This is why we have boldness. Because we are accounted righteous in God's eyes. We don't have to earn that. We don't have to work our way toward that. We receive that, and we are accounted righteous in His sight. And this is why your conscience can be clean. This is why you can dust, you can, you, you can wipe the dust off of your Bibles. This is why you can seek the face of God. This is why you can share him boldly. You were forgiven and you were declared righteous. And a righteousness that far exceeds any righteousness that a human being could achieve. It's the very righteousness of Christ. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, 21, he who knew no sin became sin so that in Christ we might become the very righteousness of God. And we are prayer warriors in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. So that Jesus is interceding for the saints as we speak. When we pray, the Holy Spirit interprets our prayers with groanings too deep for words, and the Son hears and the Father says, let it be done. And as a result, lastly, we stand in utter awe of God. Verse 4 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But when they esteemed him smitten by God, it wasn't in awe of this mysterious gospel that God had designed. It was because they thought he was smitten by God, chastised by God because of his own sin. And they thought that Jesus was receiving the due penalty of exactly what he deserved. And in looking back on it, when Israel will one day experience a national revival, they will look back on it and they will shake their heads and say, we thought that he was smitten by God because he deserved it. We didn't understand that he was smitten by God. And he didn't deserve it. But he did it willingly, passionately, wholeheartedly, because we deserved it. And so that we could go free, and so that we could worship him and be in a relationship with him. And how often in our own lives today do we misinterpret God's sovereign hand working powerfully on our behalf? To express to us his love and his goodness and his glory. And they did. They misinterpreted the whole dramatic event surrounding the cross. But it was God's sovereign hand moving it, orchestrating and working for his greatest glory for their deepest delight. And so often we look at things unfold in our life in a way that we didn't anticipate, in a way that we would not have planned if we were writing the pages of our life rather than God. And sometimes we get frustrated at God, sometimes we feel like God doesn't love us, sometimes we feel like God has abandoned us, sometimes we feel like God is apathetic toward us, sometimes we feel like God is doing His own thing and we're doing our own thing. How often do we still misinterpret? god's sovereign hand that's at work for his greatest glory and our deepest joy and god is calling all of us to the cross to fully surrender because he wants us to be free and we are never any more free than we are surrendered to god Even as followers of Christ, we are never any more free than we are surrendered to God. God wants us to be free from sin, free from fear, free from bitterness, free from guilt, free from regret. And he's asking every one of us to surrender to him. What's he asking you to surrender? He wants you to surrender so that you can be fully alive and fully free in Christ. Some may need to surrender to God's master plan, and that doesn't mean understand it, because He never calls us to understand, He simply calls us to trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but trust Him, and He will make your path straight. Some are being called this morning to surrender your understanding in order to trust the master plan of God, in order to trust His heart. Even if you don't understand it, you trust His heart that it's good and He loves you and He's working things in accordance with His glory, and you're good. To some, God is calling to surrender an aspect of your life that's compartmentalized, it's a secret, nobody knows, but God knows and it's a source of sorrow in your heart and it's a source of bondage in your life and God is calling you to surrender. To some, God is calling to surrender guilt. You're dragging behind you some weight of sorrow from your past that's not yours to drag behind you any longer because Jesus paid for that sin on the cross so that you could walk free today. Some of you... God is calling you to surrender your fear of the future. So often we, we, we entertain worrisome thoughts in our minds, but when we do, we fail to picture Jesus carrying across that bridge that we're worrying about. 98% of the things that we worry about never arrive, but if they do, we fail in our worry to picture Jesus carrying us across our loving Father who's always good, who's always glorious, who always works things together for praiseworthy conclusions. To some, God is calling you to surrender some bitterness that you had. As we've forgiven, we must forgive others. Pray for them, do good to them, bless us. None of these things have anything to do with our emotions. Jesus never commands our emotions, feel good about somebody, have warm fuzzy goosebumps when you think about somebody. He simply commands our will, pray for them, do good to them, bless them. Those are steps of faith that will invite the healing power of the spirit to flood our soul and to set us free from that wound. God is calling some of us to be free from resentment and bitterness. And God is calling some of us to be free and to surrender religion to Him. Thinking that you have to climb a little bit higher to have peace with God. Thinking that you have to work a little bit harder to be acceptable in God's sight. Thinking that you have to be a little bit better to have a relationship with Christ. And this is religion, and God is calling us to surrender that and to behold the cross. What is God calling you to surrender this morning? Would you stand with me, please? We are never as free as we are surrendered to Christ. Let's surrender something to Christ today. What are you holding back? Let it go. Surrender completely. They didn't recognize the sovereignty of God being displayed on the cross, but it was for their ultimate good. And in the same way, when we least understand our circumstances... When we least understand our circumstances, God is at most at work in us and through us for His glory and our good. But we have to surrender that understanding. We have to trust His heart. We have to trust His goodness. We have to trust in His master plan to bring about things, to praiseworthy conclusions. You know praiseworthy conclusions? It's when you want to shout and be speechless and dance and fall on your face all at the same time, God will bring praiseworthy conclusions out of our deepest sorrow that we least understand when we entrust it to Him. Just trust Him. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I just want to invite you up to the altar and surrender whatever you need to surrender. I want to invite you to to, to raise your hands to Jesus and respond to the cross with worship. They despised him. They esteemed him not. They should have been in awe of him. They should have been worshiping him. Let's do that now. Father, let us respond as your Spirit is leading each of us individually to this innocent substitute who was slaughtered at the pleasure of the Father for our freedom. Help us to surrender whatever you would have us to surrender to experience the fullness of your spirit and freedom this morning. In Jesus' name.